our giftedness in one another's lives in whatever way you have designed us to do that, to serve one another in love. It's where we pray for one another. It's where we meet the needs of one another. It's where we help and encourage and comfort one another. It's where we instruct one another. It's where we demonstrate our unity in you, our, the, indwelling, the reality of your indwelling spirit in us. It's where we come together to sing. It's where we come together to pray. It's where we come together to acknowledge our, our love and our trust and our hope in you. It is where we come together to hear you speak to us. It is where we come together, Lord, as your people, and so demonstrate the fruit of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we long for that day where it will be with all of the gathered and redeemed people in your presence forever. So as now, as we come to your word, would you, Holy Spirit, be our teacher, take up your ministry to exalt and glorify Christ in our hearts, to sanctify us, to renew our minds, that we might give all of our lives to the service and to the worship and to the praise of our Savior, to the glory of God the Father. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we're coming back again, of course, to the church of Laodicea. This is message number 2 in the church to Laodicea, the final of the seven churches uh, that Christ is addressing as the exalted and the risen Christ that he's addressing from heaven through his messenger and through the pen of John uh, to us, his church, not only to the churches, the seven historical churches that he's writing to, but the church throughout the ages and to us this morning. So this is the church of Laodicea. And as we noted, and have noted, and come into this already knowing, many of us, as he's addressing these churches, while he's uh, addressing particular situations that needed to be addressed to those original recipients of these letters... Uh, these sin issues and issues of both faithfulness and issues of sin, issues of trust in God and issues of lack of trust in God, issues of spiritual reality and the lack of spiritual reality are the truths that affect and describe and define the people of God throughout her history and throughout the ages. So the church always finds herself or parts of the church somewhere in these letters. And it is interesting that we would have a message of the risen Christ who redeemed his church, who shed his blood for his church, who came to rescue his church from the authority of darkness, the domain of darkness, and be transferred by the sovereign work of the Father into the kingdom of his beloved Son. We'll, we'll get there a little bit later. It's interesting that this Christ, this Christ who shed his blood for his church, who rules over his church, who intercedes for his church, who is returning for his church, who loves his church, and who speaks to his church, it's interesting that in his messages they are mostly negative. They're mostly negative. They're mostly rebukes. They're mostly exposure of sin and corruption that has come into the people of God where they are failing in their trust in him and in their representation of him to the world. There are bright examples in the midst of that, of faithfulness, of a life laid down for the glory of Christ, of remaining true, though all of the cultural pressures around them would pull them in another direction. There are those examples and we rejoice. There is the promise of Christ to all of those who remain faithful that as he is overcome, those who are one with him will also overcome in him and rule and reign and enjoy the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth. 
But it is interesting that most of these messages are, in fact, pointing out sin. And it is interesting that the final church, rather than being a celebration of faithfulness, rather than being a celebration of a obedient trust in God, a hope that of all of their, the, the churches that he addresses, the one he would end on would be one that would be to his praise and to his glory. And yet it's exactly the opposite. We come to the church of Laodicea and we come to the most scathing rebuke of all of the rebukes. As has already been noted many times and we'll note again, there's nothing good that he has to say about this church. We don't know if there were any true believers in this church. We can assume there were some. Clearly none that inspired the, Christ, the risen Christ to identify them in this last letter, even as he did with the letter of Sardis, which was primarily negative, but he says you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. We don't even have that in the church of Laodicea. The only spark of grace, the only spark of mercy that we see in the entire letter is the Lord's offer of repentance to them, saying that if you will turn from your ways and if you will respond to my call to you, you will be saved. But outside of that, he gives this scathing comment, I will spit you out of my mouth. And so it's, it's to the church of Laodicea then that we find a great warning of what it means what, how Christ evaluates us in terms of our commitment to him. But in each of these letters, though he speaks from heaven and he speaks to a church in a real context, he speaks as one who alone has the authority to speak. He speaks as the one who reveals his very nature, not only in his saving work, but also as Lord of his church and Lord of creation. And he does so in each of his letters, reveal himself in a certain way that confronts the issues he's addressing Primarily in terms of rebuke, but also in terms of encouragement. But here again, he's revealing himself primarily in terms of his revealing their disobedience to him. And so he says here then to the church in Laodicea in verse 14, Say to the, the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. And he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so that is his message to them. And so we would ask ourselves, what is it that is fundamentally the problem when a church goes astray or when an individual goes astray? And it is to lose sight of the reality of who God is and of the gospel. And so again, as we've noted, that 
the key and the correction to all of the misguidance that enters into a church and the sin that enters into a church is to be renewed in an understanding of who our God is. We sang about it, Behold Your God. It's to know who it is who has redeemed us, who it is who has served us, and what that necessarily must be, uh, be, look like in the life of those who name His name. And so he says to this church in Laodicea that he is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And so I want to take just a few moments this morning. We're going to look only at that last part of verse 14, uh, the credentials of Christ. We want to just take a few moments this morning before we get into the rest of his message in the couple of weeks ahead to consider who is this Christ? Who is this Christ who addresses his church? Who is this Christ who speaks to us from heaven. Indeed, we've, we've done that with the other six, but it's good here to take a, a little extra time, I think, on this final message to the church to consider who it is that we love and who it is that we serve. And what would he want to reveal about himself to a church in which he would give such sharp, sharp censure and such rebuke? Well, let's consider that this morning. The credentials of Christ. The credentials of Christ. It's really a fascinating and glorious presentation of him who is the very summation of all that God would reveal about himself, all of God's purposes for creation, all of God's purposes for the redeemed, all of God's purposes in this earth by which he would bring glory to himself. And he starts with this first definition, that he is the Amen. He is the Amen. Now, that might seem a little odd to use amen as a title, and that's because it's not in Scripture. This is one of only two times that God actually applies this idea to himself as a title. Here, in Christ's message to the church at Laodicea, and then once, actually, in the Old Testament, I'll mention it later, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16. So this is an unusual use of the term, but here he applies it to himself and he calls himself the Amen. What does he mean by this? Well, the base meaning of the term is, a, is that it serves as a, a strong affirmation of a truth, of something that is declared. That's the way one defined it. It's a good summary definition. A strong affirmation of what is declared. It's like saying yes with an exclamation point. On a text message, you know, yes, you know, exclamation, exclamation. It's a, it's a strong affirmation. It, it naturally leads at times to those familiar words of Jesus in the Gospels where he says, truly, truly. It affirms the, and emphasizes a particular statement as to its truthfulness or as to its importance. It's used in a variety of ways in the Old Testament, the term itself. It's the sense of submitting to truth after numbers of you. For example, as you have a, a list of the curses that go along with commandments of God, if they're disobeyed at the end of each one, is the statement, Amen, Amen, Amen. It is simply to say, we affirm those things as true. We affirm our accountability to them. We affirm that that is the way of righteousness. It is an affirmation. We find it at the end of doxologies and praises to God that end with the statement, Amen, or a praise of God and all the people would say amen to say yes, we agree with that. We understand that it is true. We affirm it as being important. One rabbi in the third century AD actually described the term in this way. It indicates an oath, the acceptance of words and the confirmation of words. Again, it's an affirmation of what is true. 
Now, not only is it interesting that Jesus uses this of himself as a title, as the risen Christ, he also uniquely used this word, as I already mentioned, and you're familiar, in the Gospels, when he would often introduce statements as truly, 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 I say to you, or truly, I say to you, or amen, amen. And when he used that, it, it stood out as unique. That was not a common rabbinic way of talking or of other teachers. It was something that, that Jesus particularly marked his teaching, and it marked it as being something that was highly significant, highly significant, highly important. Although every word he spoke was as God, he spoke certain words that he particularly wanted those who were hearing to pay attention to. One noted of this use of his of this uh, phrase by Jesus, that it identified his words as certain and reliable, an expression of his majesty and authority. An expression of his majesty and his authority. And that is certainly a true way in which he uses it. Let me give you one example of how this is affirmed by the people of God in the use of this word, and then we'll move on here. But In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, don't turn there, let me read it for you. He says, in this explosion of praise after acknowledging God's mercy to him, the Apostle Paul in his letter to Timothy, his son in the faith, he says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I affirm that this is the only right response to the God who is, the God who redeems, and the God who saves, is to affirm that he is the one true God, the one true King, the one who is immortal, invisible, the only God, and the only one who deserves honor and glory forever. We see that throughout the book of Revelation. Let me kind of fill this out before we come back to this as his title. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, he uses this term to affirm the glory of God in the church, he says, and he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It is meant to affirm that this king who his people worship is going to return in power and glory and judgment and be received by his own. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. He uses it again. It's the praise of the, the living creatures and the four elders and so forth before his throne in chapter 5. Right after they all fell down after this great or expression of praise, it says in verse 14 of chapter 5, And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. In other words, the expressions of praise were right expressions of praise. We see it in chapter 7, verse 12. It says here to begin the statement, to affirm it up front, that those who were around the throne and worshiping God and falling on their faces said, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Beginning and ending the praise with an affirmation of its reality, its significance and the majesty of the one to whom they offer worship. In chapter 19, anticipating the judgment that is coming, the smoke that would rise up forever and ever. 
of Babylon who was to be destroyed. It says this, And the four twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne and said, Amen. Hallelujah. Let it be so and let us praise God that it is so. And then the very end of the book begins with this as an affirmation to everything that was said. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. The last word of the book of Revelation is amen. Amen. Let it be so. Let it be affirmed. Let it be recognized as true. Let it be recognized that we hold ourselves accountable to the God who has revealed himself to us. That we love this God and anticipate his return. But here, as I noted, what is unique about the use of the phrase here is that it's used as a title. It's used as a title of Jesus himself. It's not something about him. It's not something expressed to him. It is something that he himself takes on as a title of his very nature. He says that he is the amen. What does he mean by that? It's essentially as if he is saying this. I am the certainty and the substance of all of God's promises to his people, the very purpose for creation and redemption and the coming judgment. That all of these things find their reality, their essence, and their meaning in me. That everything he says, he says with certainty and he says with authority. That's the idea. Paul used this idea, uh, just one other one time in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 1, verse 20, or in a passage we're familiar with, he says, For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes, therefore also through Him, He is our yes and amen to the glory of God through us. And every, in other words, every promise of God only has meaning, only has certainty, and it only has, uh, can elicit from us trust and faith because of what Christ is or who Christ is and what he has done. In other words, they all find their reality in Christ. He is the certainty of every promise, every proclamation of the gospel. Christ himself is the guarantee of all that God has done, all that God has said, and all that God has purposed to do. He is the amen. He is the last word. He is the final of everything. He is the essence of everything that is the most important. He is the very center of the hope of all of his people. He is the amen. Now some see here a connection. Let me just mention this to you. With another use of this word and as a title in reference to God in Isaiah chapter 65. Let me read that in verse 16. Actually, let me read verse 15 to 17. He says, you will... Leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you, speaking of the rebellious, and my servants will be called by another name. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. That word translated truth is our word. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. Verse 17, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come about. In other words, in that case too, it is referred as an essential description. Almost it's used as a title for God as the one who has spoken and will bring about his promises. 
He is the God who has affirmed to his people as he is addressing them in the book of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40, a people who are in captivity, assuring them that he is the God who will act. He is the God who has called them into relationship with himself by covenant. He is the God who will deliver them. The gods of the nations are nothing. They are meaningless. The nations are nothing and meaningless in his sight. He is the one and the only true God. And therefore, he will bring it about. And ultimately, not only will he bring about his promises in this earth, but he will create a new heavens and a new earth. And he who created the first one alone has the power to create the next. That's the idea. And again, this is throughout God's testimony through Isaiah. Let me give you just one other passage often associated with this. In verse 10 of chapter 43 he says you are my witnesses declares the lord and my servant whom i have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that i am he before me there was no god formed and there will be none after me i even i am the lord and there is no savior besides me it is i who have declared and saved and proclaimed and there was no strange god among you so you are my witnesses declares the lord and i am god even from eternity i am he And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it. In other words, I am God and I am alone God. I am the one who can make those promises. I am the one who can fulfill those promises. I am the one who formed you as a nation. I am the one who rules over the nations. I am the one who will judge the nations. And I am the one who will form for myself a people called by my name whom I will redeem and I will establish and nothing can thwart my word. And that's the idea here of Christ borrowing that title for himself too. He is the Amen. He is the one who will bring it about. And this is, in one sense, what his people need to know in light of what's to come. But here in this message to Laodicea, it particularly has this kind of rebuke. Is that you're, you're trusting in many other things and relying on them. But I am the only thing that matters. I am the amen. I am the substance of it all. And so he begins with reminding them that every other hope is a false hope. And the hope that he gives in the new heavens and the new earth should be their only and sole concern. He then says that he is the amen, the faithful and the true witness. In other words, he is the exemplar of bearing witness to God, of the very revelation of the truth of God. The very message that he gives here in the book of Revelation and Revelation itself as a whole in the message to the church is a continuation of his uh, him as the revealer of God, the witness of God, the one who manifests the truth about God. Here he is, the amen, and this amen is further explained as the one who is the faithful and the true witness of God. He was faithful on earth and he is faithful from heaven. And he was faithful unto death, and he is the one alone to be believed. Now, he uses this as well. It's a familiar term. Let me just say the the term here, translated faithful, as it it often is, is also where we get our term, you might be familiar with, martyr. And a martyr is essentially this. What is a martyr? A martyr is someone who gives their life, who suffers for a cause, a belief, for something uh, that they believe in. That person is considered a martyr. 
But the key idea, even in that, is that they are witnessing. They are witnessing in that sense, even when the use of martyrs is uh, used uh, for this term. They're witnessing to the reality that they're holding to. And they're saying, this is important enough, central enough, that I will give my life for it. I will give my life for this cause. But the key idea behind that is witness, of bearing witness to something. And here, Jesus says he is the witness, the faithful witness, and the true witness. Ultimately, in giving his life, it was a witness to the truth of God, a witness to the promises of God, a witness to his accomplishments for the people of God, a witness to who he is as the Messiah, both in his death and in his resurrection. And so here he is, the faithful witness. He is the sum and the certainty of all of God's purposes and all of God's plans. He is a faithful witness to those purposes and plans and the very accomplishment of them. He was faithful and undeviating from his mission as the Messiah and the revealer of God. He was true, his witness was, and that he was the very embodiment of truth. There is no truth outside of him. He is true. He is the measure by which every other truth claim is to be evaluated. There is no truth about God outside of Christ. That is his point. He is the faithful and the true witness. Faithful and the true witness. He is the way, we're familiar with those words, the truth and the life. He is the truth. So he's saying there is no other way. There is no other claim as a source of spiritual reality that can be found outside of me and my witness and my servants who bear witness to me. He is the faithful witness. And those who love him respond to that faithful witness and to the truth. You know, that's actually a a good test of where a person is with the Lord and where we are with the Lord is how we respond to the truth. Is the truth of Scripture one among many options of what we can believe or is it the very measure by which we believe anything and everything? Jesus told the religious leaders, just to give a little contrast here, he says, because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God, and for this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. In terms of his rebuke to the church at Laodicea, the saying, he is the faithful and the true witness, the saying, whether you are mine or not is by whether you will listen to my witness. Whether you will listen to something else and discard my words, or whether you will hear them as sheep who are listening to their shepherd from heaven, their Lord, and respond to them. And that's always the test. Will we listen to the words of God, or will we listen to other words? He says the same thing, just a quick note here in 1 John. The same idea. He says, they are from the world, speaking of false teachers. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It's pretty simple. We read it earlier about simplicity of devotion to Christ. It comes down to this. Is Christ and his word to us the word we believe and what we stand on? By which we know him. And so he says he is the amen. He is the faithful and the true witness. And our response to his word. Defines and reveals our connection to him. 
And so his word is reliable and his word is reality. And so whether we respond to his word with faith or unbelief, with, with zeal and with trust or with, by disregarding, depends on whether we know the blessing or the curse. Listen to what he said in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. At the very end, he says the same thing. I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. In other words, we could say, blessed is the one who hears the true and the faithful witness from heaven. Blessed is the one who can say amen to all that he says because he is the amen. And then he ends with these very words. I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy and of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of the prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in the book. And he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Amen. He is the faithful and the true witness. And that's not merely uh, an affirmation of a nice thing to say about Christ. He's saying he is the faithful and the true witness in the very measure of whether you stand under his judgment or his curse. Whether you stand under his place of blessing or his place of rejection is going to be the response to that witness. Those who respond rightly are those who are faithful unto death. Those who were faithful unto the end and willing to be beheaded. Those who were not and found it much easier to conform to the ease and the comforts and the protection so they thought of the culture around them to avoid that kind of commitment, he spits out of his mouth. And so he is the faithful and the true witness. So when Christ speaks, we are to listen and to follow him. But then he uses this last title, and this is what we... I want to focus on here in the remaining of our time. He says he is the beginning of the creation of God. He is the beginning of the creation of God. Now this is an astounding statement of divine glory. It's a statement that in a singular phrase establishes for the Christian the entirety of the biblical worldview and a view of everything. Is encapsulated and embodied in this statement. That he is the beginning of the creation of God. Of God. Now, at first glance, the translation, the beginning of the creation of God, sounds as if Christ, as the Son of God, was the first of God's creative acts. However, that is just exactly the opposite. Indeed, Revelation has already assigned to Christ those titles and attributes that explicitly identify him with Yahweh, not least of which, not to review them all, is that he is the living one, he is the first and the last, a title explicitly identifying Yahweh and God, the living God, the true God. He is, it's actually a statement then rather, of his divine glory as the very preeminent one of creation and of redemption. As a matter of fact, you'll remember, I'll 
point to these again, but in chapters 4 and 5, the very, the very words of worship are the glory that Jesus shares as the risen Christ with the Father equally as God. In verse 11, it's praise directed toward God the Father as creator. We'll come we'll explain this a bit more, but he says, they say, worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. And equally, they assign praise to Christ to be the recipient of all of this glory and to share in the glory of the Father in his work. When they say and they cry out with a loud voice, the end of verse 13 in chapter 5, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So even as the risen Christ He bears the names and the titles of God. He shares in the glory of God. And as we'll consider this, he shares in the creation of God and the redemption of that creation. Now, how we understand the term used here is arche. Some of you may be familiar with that. It has a variety of nuances in Scripture. And it's here, there's three ways that it's often taken to say that he is the beginning of the creation of God, the arche of the creation of God. Uh, One, say that it is the idea of his rule is what's being emphasized. And that same root term is translated often as rule. As a matter of fact, over in chapter 1, I believe it's in verse 5. From Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Yes, the ruler of the kings of the earth. It's the same root word there. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He stands over them. And some say that is the idea here. And that idea is certainly included here. For even at the very end, as he said to other churches, but to Laodicea, he says the one who overcomes, look at verse 21, will sit down with him on his father's throne. He sat down with his father on his throne. So those who belong to him will sit with him on his throne. A throne he shares with the father. So the idea of rule over the nations is clearly in part of what the idea is here, is that he is the one with all authority. And the rule of Christ is what's emphasized throughout the book of Revelation, culminating in the fact that he returns, written on him as the king of kings and the lord of lords who is going to execute judgment on the nations. It's also possible to take the emphasis here as the sense of the originator of the new creation, And those who would take that would look back primarily at verse 5 of chapter 1 and say, The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, we're going to come back to this, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who sits, uh, who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and that he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be all the glory and dominion forever and ever. And they would look back at that and say, It's him who is the ruler, who is the firstborn of the dead, who is the faithful witness, they'd say he's connecting here in verse 14 to those titles that identify him as the resurrected Lord who has brought into reality a new creation, new creatures that will end in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the emphasis here is to say the beginning of the creation of God from this point of view is to say the one who is the very first instance, the very beginning, the very start, the very foundation of the new people of God who are in Christ by virtue of his death and his resurrection. 
who is the Lord of a new humanity, the creator of a new humanity that finds its very reality and nature and identity in him. And that certainly is possible too, because indeed all who are in Christ are new creations. These ideas are included. Now the word is used actually two other times in Revelation to speak of Christ as the comprehensive ruler over creation and in such a way that it uniquely points to his eternality. Again, that was introduced actually in the opening vision where he says, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. He says later, I am the alpha and I am the omega. I am the beginning And I am the end. I am the sum total of all reality. I stand over it. I stand before it. I stand at its end. I stand over it in the middle. He is the sole ruler and sum total of all reality as Lord. And he says that again in chapter 21. Beginning and ending with that affirmation. Verse 6 of chapter 21 After he talks about the new heavens and new earth coming in, again, he taps into these titles in verse 5. Right? For these words are faithful and true. These words that come from the faithful and true witness. And in verse 6, then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water and life without cost. And so the idea here then is that he is the one who is... The all-encompassing reality of creation and the ruler over it and the sustainer of it. In the temporal sense, to say then that Christ is the beginning of creation is a statement about his existence before creation, who is the one who brought it into its beginning. And it's better here to see the creation of God, I think not as the new creation, limiting it to the new creation, but actually as the beginner of bringing all things into being and all of creation. First, that is precisely what is going to be demonstrated throughout the whole book of Revelation, is that he is the Lord over every creature. It is precisely what the Father is worshipped for, and Christ sharing in that worship, we already read it in chapter 4, verse 11, that he is the creator of all things, and as the creator of all things, he has the rights over all things, he is the ruler of all things, he is the potter, and everything else is the clay for him to do with as he wishes. So I think he's the beginning of the creation of God. He's referring here, while including the idea of his rule, while including the idea of his role as redeemer to create, make a new heavens and a new earth, is emphasizing particularly his role in bringing about all things. As the one who is the beginning of creation, in this way that he is the eternal son of God, through whom and for whom all things were created. Now we're going to fill that out in just a bit. One describes it in this way. This self-designation is the most explicit allusion in the apocalypse to the pre-existence of Christ. He's the beginning of creation because he is, at the beginning, the very one through whom all things came into being. Does that language sound familiar to you? How about John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing came into being that has come into being. The beginning there is to speak of Him who was at the very beginning bringing all of these things into being in the first place. And that's the idea here. 
I think. And I think that's the emphasis, while including the other ideas. So it includes his idea of him as creator. It includes him as the one who rules over all of creation. And it includes his preeminence. And I would just make a footnote here then. How are we to say this? If God has worshipped the Father in verse 11, then how is it that Christ here then is equally the creator of God? Now we're going to turn over to another passage in a bit and, and end there and consider this. But let me just say this. There is a consistent order in the way that Scripture talks about God and the way that God relates to himself. Now, we're not going to go too far with this, but it is one of my favorite doctrines, and it has this simple title. That might, it's not too fancy, but uh, it includes a profoundly glorious idea that I present to you. It's called the inseparable operations of God. That means whenever God acts, God acts as a trinity. God acts as Father, God acts as Son, and God acts as Holy Spirit. He always acts as three. Any act of God includes an act of the Father, an act of the Son, and an act of the Spirit. But it includes an act of the Father and the Son and the Spirit consistent with their relationship within the trinity and the roles that they have and the relationship that they have with one another. Therefore, the Father ordained creation. Creation came into being through Christ, and it was by the breath of God, the power of God, the Spirit, who in the opening words of Scripture hovered over the face of the earth and executed all of the words of God to bring about everything that is. The Father planned salvation and redemption. It was according to the plan of the unbegotten one. He accomplished this plan through the begotten one, the Son, it was implemented, and he was sustained in the fulfillment of that purpose of redeeming humanity and then applying that redemption through the power of the Spirit. God always acts in every act as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here, in saying that he is the beginning of the creation of God, is saying that he, with the Father, was the beginning of all things that came into being, and as such, in his particular role as Son and Redeemer, has all rights of rule and reigning and ownership of creation. That's the idea. Now, he attaches this to, and that is why, by the way, that he can receive the worship. And say, worthy are you to break its seals, the seals that will bring the judgment of God on the earth and claim the ownership of Christ over all of creation. For you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, nation, tongue, and nation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive what? Power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all things in them I heard saying, we read it earlier to him who sits on the throne, be blessing, honor, glory, dominion forever. Every created thing, everything in the heavens and under the earth, everything that exists, exists for the glory of the one from whom all things came and to whom alone has rights to all of the riches and the glory of all things that were ever made. Him who is the beginning of creation and shares that glory with the Father as the Son. Now, here's an interesting connection, and I want to point back to the background to this letter that the church at Laodicea would have surely known. We'll have to go through this fairly quickly, but but first let me point back to verse 5 of chapter 1, and we see the first instance of this kind of connection, this idea. We've read it, let me read it again. 
after mentioning the Spirit, and he says this message is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. There is that idea of the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. The glorious one who is the preeminent one of all of the new creation. And so that idea is included here, the Lord of the new creation. But he is Lord of new creation as also the creator of the first creation. So where then is some of this language then that would have been familiar with them? Well, let's go back just for a brief moment to the book of Colossians. Now, I introduced to you last week that there is an intimate connection between the letter of Colossians, possibly the letter of Ephesians, with the church at Laodicea. In the book of Colossians, in Paul's writing to Colossians, now he had never actually visited these churches, at least at the point of writing, these three churches, primary churches in the Lycus Valley. So that would have been Hierapolis, Colossians, and Laodicea. And so he's writing here, as he mentioned several times in Colossians, if you remember, as Epaphras, who went and brought the gospel to that area, established those churches He was instructed later at the end of Colossians to bring this letter to the church at Laodicea. Verse 16, when this letter is read among you, have it also read at the church of Laodiceans. For your part, read my letter coming from Laodicea. But behind this title then of Christ in Revelation chapter 3 verse 14 is a very clear connection to what they would have been familiar with in the letter of Paul to the churches in that area through that we have in the letter of Colossians. That would have exalted Christ and been the information that they would have had in an understanding of Christ when they heard him give this title. Now I want to just very briefly then, of course, look at verses 15 to 20. But notice how he introduces these verses. He he's introduces them because he's explaining to them the content of his prayer for this church. And at the end of his prayer, as he's laying out for them that they would have all spiritual wisdom and understanding, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power. He comes to verse 12 and he says, And the capstone of that all is that we give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That was the work of the father to transfer us into the kingdom of the son in whom his purposes of redemption have been accomplished and his people have reconciliation through the forgiveness of sin. It was a sovereign work of the father. But then he moves from that to explain the nature of the Son in whose kingdom we have been transferred to. And it is an explanation then of the divine glory of Christ and the eternal purposes of God in the person and work of the Son. Let's just look at some of these again very briefly. So who is the one over this kingdom? In what kingdom have we been transferred to? Again, his beloved Son... In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Verse 15, and who is the Son? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come, will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace to the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, the things that were made by him. Let's just, again, consider this briefly. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. This is reflected in many ways in Scripture. Uh, One way would be the language of the writer to Hebrews. He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. Jesus, in his language, said this, He who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. In the language of John, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or in verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The invisible God, the God who is invisible to any naked human eye or that of any created being, unless He had somehow limited His majesty, accommodated Himself to His creatures, and He does. But gloriously so, this invisible God who could be seen by what was made, is seen particularly in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son who took on flesh. He, the Son, is in His incarnation the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Later in Colossians, Paul puts it this way. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Or in chapter 2, 9, for in Him all the fullness dwells in bodily form. Just to summarize this simply, the incarnate Son, in the incarnate Son, the full potential of man as the bearer of God's image is realized. For in it, the fullness of God in the person of the Son, His image is manifest in a glorious way through A human body. He is the incarnate Christ as the God-man, truly God, truly man. In his essence and the fullness of his being, the fullest potential expression and fulfillment of all of God's design for humanity. He is the image of the invisible God. He is, secondly, the firstborn of all creation. The term there, if some of you are familiar with it, is protokos. It's, it's a profoundly glorious term, but often misunderstood. And it was this kind of language, actually, that in the early church, it took all of the, the resources, particularly in the, the first few centuries, of a, or uh, in the second century, of a man by the name, or fourth century, excuse me, of a man named, by the name of Arius. 
or Irenaeus, who was contradicting the teaching of a teacher by the name of Arius, known as Arianism, who said that Christ is a glorious being. Christ is the highest of God's creation, but Christ is a being who came into existence at a point in time. His statement was, there was a time when he was not. And part of that would be drawn from this kind of language, but a profound misunderstanding of it. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. The protocos of all creation. Now that term can be used at times in the sense of the first of order. I won't give you examples. Just take my word for it. But it also has the idea of a position of honor and preeminence. Honor and preeminence. Which is exactly how we see it used In many places in scripture, let me give you just one example in Psalm chapter 89. In Psalm chapter 89, speaking of David and God's covenant with David, the psalmist says this in verse 27. I will also make him, speaking of David, my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. David was not the first king of the earth of nations. He wasn't even the first king of the nation of Israel. However, he would come by virtue of God's covenant with him, become the most preeminent of all of the kings of the nation of Israel, the highest of the kings of the earth, the one through whom the true king and king of all the earth would come. I will make him my firstborn. That's the idea. It speaks of preeminence. It speaks of honor. It speaks of glory. It speaks of a weightiness to the one who holds this position. Christ is described as the firstborn of many brethren in Romans 8, 29. The firstborn of the dead. We've read that a couple of times. In Hebrews 1, 6, he brings the firstborn into the world. And he says, let all of the angels of God worship him, speaking of Christ. And here he is the firstborn of creation, which is to say this. He is, as the one through whom all things came into being, who when he would unite himself to humanity, demonstrate his true nature and take on the role as not only redeemer, but the preeminent one above all of creation who has full rights to its ownership and to its rule and to its possession. And notice what he says then. Verse 16. For by him... Or in him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. And of course, to make him a part of the creation is just at the face of it, before other arguments even enter in, a contradiction to the statement. He cannot be the creator of all things visible and invisible, and at the same time, a part of that creation. By him, all things were created. In him, all things were created created it was the god's the father's purpose and god's purpose as father and son and holy spirit to create all things by the plan of the father through the son that they might belong to the son as ruler and head over all things and this is again common language first corinthians 8 6 yet for us there is one god from whom are all things and one lord jesus christ through whom are all things. It's the language of Hebrews chapter 2, 
where he says this, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing sin many sons to glory to perfect their author through salvation. So this includes his creative work, both the physical and the spiritual realm. It is what he did in the language of Paul to the Philippians as he existed in the form of God. In the full glory of God, in the full nature of God. In the language of John, it was the word who was, was God. If in the language of Jesus later in his prayer, the glory I had with you before the world was. It is this pre-existent divine glory of the eternal Son of God. Through whom all things came into being. Through whom man was created with the very purpose of being the vehicle at one day in the future in the fullness of time. For him to unite himself to humanity to engraft a redeemed humanity into what he has always shared with the Father in terms of nearness and love and fellowship. So there's nothing that exists, is the point here, that did not come into being but through the eternal Son. There is no created being in the universe, there is no other being in the universe who could have this kind of glory and this kind of ownership and this kind of rule over all things because there is no other being in the universe by whom all these things came into existence and holds the position of owner, of owner and creator. So this son, through whom all things came into being, took on flesh to fulfill God's purpose for creation, to redeem it and rule it. And look at what else he says. We, I say this often, but I'll mention it again. And it, well, The reason anything exists at all is because of Christ. Every star, every grain of sand, every galaxy, every universe, every person exists because of Christ and for Christ. The very purpose of creation and the end of creation, Paul says in Ephesians 11, is to sum up everything under the rule, the administration of Christ. He's not a part of creation. He's not an afterthought to the creation. He's the very reason anything exists. It was created for him. For him. We don't exist for ourselves. We don't exist to accomplish anything other than ultimately to be to his everlasting praise and glory. That's why we exist. And he says not only that, did he bring all things into existence, but he sustains and upholds all things through Christ. Reflecting here again the language of Hebrews 1, 2, that all things are held together by the word of his power. And here that is connected to the very reality and the existence of Christ. Verse 17, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. They endure. Why doesn't the world and the universe just disintegrate into nothing? It is because in Christ... They are held together. He who spoke it into existence. He through whom all things were brought into being. He who has redeemed all of these things is the one in whom by his very nature and power and glory upholds all of these things and holds them together. He is the creator, the sustainer, and the end of all creation. He is the head of all creation as God the Son. He is specifically the head of the church. 
And the reason that the church can exist forever is because he exists forever. The reason anything can exist at all and exist with any kind of continuance is because it is held together in him. And he is finally here, and we have to super quick. He is in the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. And here we'll just simply say, that's the bookend here. It is that he is, as the preeminent one, the one who would have ultimate and is to have ultimate glory in everything. He is the firstborn in the sense that he is one. He is the preeminent one by virtue of creation. He is also firstborn and the preeminent one in the resurrection in the sense that his resurrection also was the foundation and the beginning and the prototype of every resurrection. And so Paul says that we will be conformed to the body of his glory. Philippians 3.21 He is the preeminent one of the dead. He is the very one by whom every other resurrection will be conformed, or to whom every other resurrection will be conformed. He through whom and for whom the first creation came into being and is sustained, is he by whom and for whom the new creation comes into existence and forever lives and realizes the fullness of God's intimate and infinite goodness, grace, and glory. And those for whom he has made everything to give as a gift, the Father made everything to give as a gift to His Son, so that they may, in His Son, share with Him in this eternal, majestic grace and glory and kingdom. So that is the idea in, in brief here. He says to the church, who is it who's speaking? The amen, the one in whom all of the purposes of God are bound and certain and guaranteed. The faithful and true witness, the one who reliably speaks the truth of God and to whom every man is accountable. He is the beginning of the creation of God. He is the preeminent one. He is the very originator of all of creation, both in the first creation and as such, he has the right to rule over it. And even more as not only the one through whom all things came into being and forth through whom all things came into being, that will find its fullest expression in his redemption and atoning work on the cross in which he bought back to himself, according to the Father's plan, a people that would... He would own for himself who would forever share in his inheritance sit on his throne enjoy his relationship with the father and know the riches of his kindness for all of eternity and he's saying this is who speaks to you don't trade off this reality for something as insignificant and vain as the things of this world don't be lukewarm in other words Come and know him who is the true source of life, the true giver of life, the true sustainer of life, and the one to whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess right, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's end there and then we'll uh, pick it up next week. Father, thank you for your word. Christ, help us to see reality. How dull our hearts and our minds can become to so many things. But what a wonder it is to pull back the screen for a bit and to see the central glory of you in all of creation. May our hearts wonder and praise and delight in all that you are. May we be those who listen to you as obedient sheep and do not find your commandments burdensome, but the joy and the freedom of our hearts. 
May we be those who follow you, knowing that you are worthy to be trusted. You are worthy to give up whatever petty desires we have in this world to know the reality of your life and the freedom of your kingdom. So help us, Lord, again, to see and to meditate, to hear and to listen, to follow and cling to all that you are for us. And for those who are outside of your saving grace, our prayer is that they would turn from the vain things of this world, the silly things that rob affection, and they might see what are the most important things, the most important one, Jesus Christ, and turn and to follow him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.